Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 215 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the kinky cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we present Master on K. On who can consent. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for loads of information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com. Here's your host, Woody. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Consent has been in the news a lot lately, and the question is, who can give consent and when, and what is consent? So we have an expert on the subject, and it's Master Ron Kay. How are you, Ron? I'm doing fairly well, thank you. We had uh, talked about this a couple months ago in a mask meeting. I found some of the things that you were saying pretty interesting because I hadn't thought about them that way. So let's just kind of review what consent is. Well, essentially, you know, the base definition of consent that everybody functions with is a permission for something to happen or an agreement to do something. In our case, um, it's generally centered on the permission for something to happen. Okay. And so in the case of a negotiation, some form of negotiation, you know, it's, hey, let's hop in bed or whatever it is, or let's do a scene. Somebody has to say yes at some point. A person not saying no is not consent. We would think that, um, as was pointed out recently to me in a conversation with Guy Baldwin. We think about consent in different ways based on gender. Men uh, have always functioned on a yes until no basis. You know, you walk into a bar, you see a, a hot guy, you want to grab him by the butt, you do it. If he says, you know, stop, you stop. No harm, no foul, basically. Probably not a good idea if you're going into a bar and trying to grab a woman by the butt, because women tend to function on a no until yes basis. In other words, until they tell you pretty explicitly that you can touch them, you better not. That's very true. That difference in viewpoint seems to be oftentimes the source of conflict uh, as well. Men just look at things differently than women do, and it doesn't matter much what part of society you're in at this point. You know, we know what's going on with the news. We, we've seen all the things. You know, even flirting at this point can be uh, considered a non-consensual activity. And, you know, given some of the conversations I've had with my wife about the this, this subject and listening to what's being said on the news, you know, there's pretty reasonable basis for that position. Yes, and it's being amplified by the organizations such as NCSF and others. And then, mm-hmm. of course, all the activity that we've seen in the news has brought it to the forefront. I think a lot of what we're seeing in the news is people with an unequal amount of power using that power to force their agenda on somebody who isn't consenting or is being is giving a coerced consent, shall we say? And if anything, you know, we need to be very clear within the kinky world exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. 
as it applies to kinksters, um, if we want to get in uh, to a situation, a public situation, we see somebody that we want to negotiate a scene with or even a negotiated date with, mm-hmm. kind of the first rule you laid out is uh, sex of a person. If, it, if it's male to male, it's one set of rules. If it's male to female, it's another set of rules. And I guess it's maybe a third set of I rules. I think that's changing. Okay. I really do. That, that was part of the conversation I had with Guy on the methodology that men and women think with. Um, I think within the, the gay male community anyway, a number of the younger men are starting to look at things in a no-until-yes frame. I suspect that, that that's being driven by what's happening to our society surrounding you know, assault and abuse and all the other things that we're, we're seeing and hearing. You know, there, there's been a lot of effort put into getting everybody into a no until yes uh, frame. And I think that it's starting to change what's happening, you know, in the men's communities as well. It's a lot slower. Um, there's still a lot of men who like yes until no, but, um, you know, there's got to be a recognition that society is changing and, and we need to be very aware of where we're standing and what we're doing. The old political correctness comes in here at some point, I guess. No, I, 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 I tend to, to, to not want to go with the political correctness thing. That, that's more of a, a red herring, I think, in, when we're talking about the issue of consent, because people tend to want to get off of their responsibility instead of actually take responsibility using that. I think it's just a human thing. You know, people want to be treated as if they have value and they have rights. And I think that the way we interact with them is one of the best indicators of how, you know, we value them, how we see them, how we respect them, that kind of thing. And I think people are paying more attention to it now than they used to. How do we proceed to get consent? Frankly, you know, I start with the word carefully and respectfully. You know, it's okay to approach somebody and say, you know, in whatever is the right way for whoever's speaking, you know, I'm interested in you. I'd like to pursue this a little bit. Would you be interested in that? But you got to pay attention to the answer. If they say yes or, or give you a positive response, you can proceed if they say no or give you some kind of a negative response or evasive response. Probably a better idea to just back off. Yeah, one and done in this case. Don't go there a second time. Pretty much. Yeah, well, I don't know about the not going there a second time. I mean, some people just need to get to know you. I've always found that just talking to people and not actually making an approach opens a lot of doors and you know at some point you can um, make the approach or you can even you know reapproach someone after you've gotten to know them but it's got to be done with a considerable amount of respect and you know a modicum of diplomacy and decency and a number of other things that we can throw into that hat this is good advice because uh, we've seen it go horribly wrong and uh I think through our time in the scene, 
we have had it go wrong ourselves. Everybody makes mistakes. It's learning from them that is not so common sometimes. Apply common sense to the not-so-commonsensical people out there. Uh-huh. Okay, so then what's next? Well, I think that, you know, when we start talking about consent, you know, it's, it's all well and good for somebody to say yes, but here's the question that I think very few people actually think about that everybody needs to think about, and that is the person that you're talking to, that you're asking for consent from, that you're wanting to engage with, do they actually have the capacity to consent? This is an interesting statement because when we were talking at the mass meeting about this, it kind of caught me off guard. For the most part, we assume that our our peers and what have you, um, they're you know they're certainly old enough; they're over the age of consent, and so they should be able to consent. But there are several rules that go with that. Go ahead and address those. I think the easiest thing for everybody to understand is. You know, by breaking it down kind of along the legal lines, like I did at the meeting. And, and I'm very familiar with what California law was, you know, when I was studying law 20 something, 30, well, 30 years ago or so. And that was that there were, you know, defined abilities to consent in the penal code. If you were considered to be mentally challenged, either by IQ or by um, mental illness, you weren't seen under the eyes of the law as having the capacity to consent. Um, if you were chemically disabled, you know, a person who's drunk does not possess the capacity to consent. A person who's on drugs that remove inhibitions or lower their higher order functioning does not have the ability to consent. You know, you can take that basic frame and apply it to just about every encounter. When you're asking for consent from somebody, you need to know that they are um, in possession of their faculties. They aren't under the influence of any chemical. They have the mental wherewithal to understand what you're asking and to give you a good decision based on that. And if at any time during the process, either before you begin the activity or during the activity, any of those elements change, if the capacity to continue to consent is removed, then consent is automatically withdrawn. This is interesting. If you look at, for instance, gay bars, the key word is bar, mm -hmm. alcohol establishment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you have to determine how inebriated your contentious person is. Yeah, you should. Uh, I don't think gay men worry about it too much because they're men. And for the most part, you know, my experience with the men that I've been involved with is until I say no, let's go. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a very, very different point of view. If you flip that over, the heterosexual community, the BDSM community, is rather anti-substance, uh, alcohol, drugs, what have you. You know, I used to think that, and my experience has been in the last five years, I would say, I see a much higher use of chemicals as a part of the, the scene, so to speak. I see a lot of people who smoke dope, who've done 
you know, some kind of pill, that kind of thing. I think that that's a pretty dangerous trend, but, you know, people are people and they're going to do what they're going to do. And for the tops in particular that are listening to our conversation, they need to consider what their position is going to be vis-a-vis their partners, the people that they choose to engage with. Are they going to take the chance or not? Because that's exactly what it is. If you enter into a negotiation for consent with somebody who does not have the capacity to consent, and at a later point that person says, well, I didn't say that that was okay. I didn't want that to happen. Um, you know, there's your there's the question, and unfortunately, in this day and age, it all too often can end up in front of a jury, especially the day after. Yeah, yeah. Regret has an interesting way of changing facts. It does. When I came into the scene, I came in Europe in the Amsterdam scene, and. As I came in, alcohol consumption was just a normal part of it there in the heterosexual scene. Uh, I remember playing in a dungeon in Paris in the basement of a bar. And the thing is, when you're waiting for your play space, you sat up in the bar and drank until uh, the space was available. And so it was, it's a whole different look at things from the U.S. point of view. Yeah, it is. Um, unfortunately, as much as people, you know, tend to forget our history, you know, the United States was founded by Puritans. It continues to be populated by people who tend to have more puritanical points of view. Our legal system was was established based on more puritanical points of view. It's not as free flowing, you know, a system. True statement. Mm-hmm. So moving on, then we have established that uh, substances, substance abuses, uh, or even the presence of substance can affect consent ability. Correct. And then there's other things but that affect that's it. that's not the only thing. Right. As much as we don't like to, to admit to it, there's a lot of denial. You know, mental illness plays a role, okay, or mental capacity. Um, you know, people that are that are challenged by their genetics don't have the capacity to consent at a certain point. People that are mentally ill, depending on the type of mental illness, may or may not have the capacity to consent. It's, I think, our obligation as tops to ensure that the person that we're, we're interested in or engaging with is of the nature that they clearly have a capacity to consent and that we've done everything we can to uh, screen for things that would be an indicator that they don't. Well, okay, that's a little vague. A little vague, but we're not all mental health professionals. But I really believe that tops need to have an understanding of you know, mental health issues, and they need to spend time, you know, seeking out workshops and that type of thing to help them understand the kinds of mental health problems that could, in fact, you know, 
be hidden under that layer of, oh, this is a really scrumptious, submissive state, uh, masochist that I can enjoy. You know, is that person truly a scrumptious, submissive masochist, or do they have a mental health problem that, you know, you're just aiding and abetting by your behavior? Not what everybody wants to hear. <laughs> you're right. But when you say that, you say mental health problem, it could be mm-hmm. a fairly minor problem that does affect consent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and depression. Think about that. Yeah. Somebody on, on depression drugs? Somebody that's either depressed or on depression drugs. Depression drugs can affect the person's ability to make good, sound judgments at times. Depression itself definitely affects a person's ability to make sound judgments, um, even the, the the ability to act to protect themselves. You've got to spend a little time and educate yourself as to what the, the signs are. And then as part of your normal conversation, your screening protocol, which we all have um, or should, um, you know, you build in some investigatory questions that help you understand whether that person's really of sound mind and body. It's the same thing uh, that they say in a will. Uh, are you of sound mm-hmm. mind and body to sign a will? Mm-hmm. Kind of the same test. It's very much the same test, and, and it can be an amorphous thing because one day a person could be sound and the next day they might not be quite so sound. You know, and the real, I think, decision point is, do I feel comfortable enough with this person that I'm willing to put myself on the line legally for what I'm getting ready to engage in with them? Because we'll just take plain vanilla sex for the moment, okay? What we think is a consensual coupling, you know, in the eyes of the law or in a court, can we back it up? Do we have enough to show a jury that it was a consensual coupling and that the person had the capacity to give that consent. But this is not a fun conversation for anybody to have to think about because it takes a lot of the fun out of it. Well, you're right about that, but it also changes. You could have yeah. uh, consent available today and you start into a relationship with somebody and tomorrow uh, they go off the deep end and consent is revoked. Not by them, Mm -hmm. but by law. Yeah, just simply by law. I used to see things in, you know, pretty simple ways of looking at, at, at you know, yes is yes, no is no. Nowadays, you know, yes has gotten shaky. No is still no. True. You know, and given all of the changes that we see in our society and all of the things that are happening in our society, if we're talking about just sex, you know, just vanilla sex with the kinds of caveats and and caution that we are. We need to be many times more cautious when we're talking about engaging in transgressive behavior. And everything we do in the BDSM world is considered transgressive behavior by normal folks, you know, the vanilla folk. Especially a jury especially a jury. So we've got to be more, more careful and much more aware of the issues that we're faced with. And we have to recognize that it has to be consent in its reality 
has to be something that we consider to be an ongoing and verified process. I mean, you know, if you're having sex with somebody and they say no, stop, you know, you've got to be of a mental state to back out and back off at that instant. Yeah, primal urges be damned. Yeah, the mind has to rule the body on this. You know, consent is an ongoing thing. The second there's any sign that consent has been withdrawn, you have to stop. It doesn't matter. Easier, I think, in the vanilla sex process because, you know, you go no and you back off. I don't know about you, but I've done it, you know, or I've had somebody that I was with say, you know, I, I want this to stop. I've just backed off. And then we've had, you know, a long conversation about what was going on and and, and so forth. Most of the time, it's an emotional thing. We get through it. But sometimes it's really serious and that person is really having a problem. And, you know, you got to take the time to, to deal with that. Because if you don't, you leave the impression that maybe they didn't have consent in the first place. And it becomes a question. And that question has to be answered sometimes by a court of law. Got to answer that question. Right. Got to make sure that both sides are on the same page and make sure two or three times that both sides are on the same page these days. When you're playing with somebody, whether it's vanilla sex or BDSM play, you have a bunch of different chemicals that the brain mm-hmm. is producing, the serotonins and the, and the different things. And you, you add the words passion, uh, you add the words emotion, and they start to override some of your defenses. And so as things start to change, you know, well, yeah, I, I think I can go through uh, something with somebody. And then all of a sudden the emotional aspect kicks in and I'm going, oh, but this guy kind of reminds me of my ex that beat me up right in the middle of a scene. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it goes yeah. pear shape. We all have stepped on those landmines. We have to acknowledge them and deal with them and work through them. And, you know, because our minds are really wonderful, interesting machines. And the triggers to information that are in our minds, you know, can be pretty vague and and undistinguished. You know, like you said, you know, you can be right in the middle of a scene and a smell or a sound or a sensation of some sort, not involving what you're doing, but just in the surrounding environment, can trigger a memory. And that memory can be such that the person instinctively withdraws, and you've got to be aware that they've done that. Maybe not verbally just yet. You know, one of the things that I've always done when I've been working with people is I carry on a conversation with them pretty much the whole time. I don't use safe words because it's too artificial for me. It's just not my style. But the conversation that I'm having with them, you know, the, the interaction, the nature of that, because I've spent the time to get to know the person before I walk into the bedroom or into the dungeon with them, tells me I have that base comfort with the interaction. And when that interaction changes, you know, my processor says, uh, warning, warning, danger. And I start verifying where we're at and what's going on, that everything's okay. We can continue. All those things happen pretty much automatically because that's the way I've built my interaction with people that I'm working with. I think that 
we need to spend more time building that relationship prior to so that we really do know the person that we're taking under our hand because even you know those people who swear by safe words if they don't know that person well enough to sense a change in the and the reaction a change in the way the body is carried a change in breathing a change in sound um, I mean, a groan can become a grunt, and if you know the person well enough in how they interact, you know that when it went from the groan to a grunt, something's not right. That's the kind of attention we need to be paying now. It's a, a lot more involved and requires a little bit more process, but it's a lot safer. And it's a lot safer to play with somebody that you know, that you can read, that you're used to, as opposed to pickup play. Yeah, pickup play can be fun. But there's only so far you can go with it. Somebody who walks into a dungeon and, and sees somebody they really like and that they think would be a, a lot of fun to work with, they make the approach, you know, they have a, a conversation, they feel good about it. You're still not going to get past what I would consider the basic superficial level of stuff. You're only going to be able to, to to take them so far because you really don't understand what makes them tick. You really don't understand how they process. You don't have any experience with them. You know, it can be as simple as, you know, their body processes an impact where the skin changes a certain amount with a certain type of impact when everything's okay, but when they're stressed or have had too much, it changes faster or slower. You can do a lot of interesting things with pickup work. I, I, I did a lot of pickup work in my younger years and had a lot of fun doing it, but there was always a limit. I could never go past a certain point simply because I didn't know that person well enough to know what their reactions were going to be or how to read them. You know that and I know that, but we've all seen people that have had scenes in the dungeon first-time players, and somebody got left in the corner in a steaming heap. Yeah, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it <laughs> Literally. can. Yeah. The number of people who are irresponsible in the way they go at what I love to do is astounding. And it's many times more than the people that go at it in a thorough and comprehensive and compassionate way can't change other people. I can change myself, and that's really all I worry about is, you know, when I'm talking to people like I'm talking to you, you know, I'm speaking based on my philosophies. Everybody has to have their own. You know, the people I respect are people that embody many of the same kinds of ideals that I embody. The people that I don't respect are the people that would be willing to leave somebody in a steaming heap in the corner of the, of, of the dungeon and spend no time taking care of that person. Is that judgmental of me? Yeah, a little bit. But, you know, I've also been the guy that's walked into the corner and helped pick that person up and put them back together because somebody needed to and nobody was doing it. Bring them some water, put a blanket around them. Comfort them. Whatever it was, yeah. sometimes it's just sitting there holding them while they cry. But they shouldn't be left alone until they're whole and back to a stable state. And like I said, that's a, a whole other podcast about how we take care of the people that we take under our, our hand. 
And this same person that we're talking about in the corner is the one that's not going to feel so good about the scene the next day. No, they're not. And I'd be willing to say pretty unequivocally that they didn't consent to being treated the way they were being treated because nobody wants to be treated that way if they're in their right mind. Okay, That's just a basic human norm. Anybody who's willing to treat somebody that way probably should be avoided. Obviously, I feel that way pretty strongly. But on a consent scale, it's real easy to say that person did not consent to what they had done to them. And that's coming after 40-plus years of doing this. The one thing I want to say about that is, uh, listeners, go back to the first week in December and listen to BDSM Nightmares. And there are six people that will tell you that got left in the corner in a steaming heap. And the seventh one couldn't talk to you because she died. And uh, this this gets really ugly. And when they die, people go to jail for a long time. I think that's too nice. It is because they needed to be beaten for four hours like the one that died. I hate hearing stories like that, unfortunately. I think it happens more often than we know. It does, and, and it gets swept under the carpet sometimes BDSM was really not a part of this, even though it was disguised as a BDSM family gone wrong. It was just abusive, period. Yeah, well, abuse is abuse, and we don't know even a thumbnail's worth of the amount of abuse that's going on because people that are abused are ashamed of having been abused and are unlikely to report. They did it to themselves in their mind. Right. They, They put themselves in a bad place, and they're ashamed of it. Right. We could could turn around and look at that. Well, how did they consent to being in that place in the first place? Did they have the capacity to consent at that point in time? And for the most part, I think on a careful examination of the evidence, that person did not have the capacity to give informed consent that was real and usable when they walked in the door. Because a person who's going to give a good consent has to have the capacity to defend themselves. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that are abuse victims are in such a place mentally and emotionally that they don't feel like they have any other option but to go ahead. That is not consent. Well, also, when you're a slave, you know you can't say no. Oh, God. I. And I'm saying that with a tongue-in-cheek. You know that. I know you do, and that's another whole conversation, you know, because... Every human being has a right to say no for any reason, even if it's just because they want to. And people that try to remove that capacity, the ability to say no, without recognizing are removing the capacity to consent. A person who cannot say no does not have the capacity to consent. Yes means nothing if no means nothing. How true. So all those people out there who believe that slaves don't have the capacity to say no, they don't have the capacity to be a slave because they could never consent to it in the first place. That simple. It's an equal scale. Well, there's a lot to think about in today's episode as we start to come down to the end. There's more. When we start talking about capacity consent changing, what happens in a scene when the person's flying on endorphins, you know, I mean, they're just as high as if they, you know, got high on drugs. 
by definition because the body is providing the drug. At some point, does the capacity consent go away? And the answer to that is yes. If the person can't respond to you in the same way as when they started, capacity of consent is withdrawn you know, or, or has diminished. And consent, as much as everybody wants to think about it, is not just yes right now, one time. It's yes for as long as whatever is happening is happening. It's like come back to the vanilla sex thing. Two people get together, they start going at it. There's got to be some indication that both sides are still in and want to continue for that to continue. If either side says, mm, this isn't right for me, it's got to stop. Well, in a scene, same thing. If a person loses the ability to communicate, they lose the capacity to withdraw consent. Consent is automatically withdrawn at that point because they have to have the capacity to consent for it to continue. These are all very true words, and we have all seen people flying around on endorphins, and endorphins are drugs, no matter how you look at it. Mm -hmm. And we already covered drugs. Yeah. As much as I like to think of consent as being a really easy thing, you know, yes is yes, no is no, you know, the concept of consent when it's what do I, what am I going to do if I get taken to court really mucks things up. But unfortunately, in our society, in this day and age, it, it's something that we have to think about. Even if it's not something that's likely to happen, we should be thinking about it on, you know, am I confident that I can adequately defend an allegation that I did something without consent? Do I know the person well enough to trust that their consent is real and will be there tomorrow if I do the activity today? Even if they're not happy with what happened, will they still say, yes, I consented tomorrow? And if you can't say that about the partner, as much as it might be fun, it might not be smart. You are absolutely right about that. Ron, uh, this has been you know, informative. It was really informative when I heard it at the mast meeting and I approached you to do this cast. And I think it's important stuff. You know, we're, we're crossing into some legal boundaries. We're dealing with a lot of variables that are shades of gray. And I, I hate to use the term 50 shades of consent, but think about it. You know, it's not just yes, no, plus, minus. It is all kinds of shades between and they move constantly. And so as a person becomes unable to respond, then that consent is starting to erode very fast. Let's all keep that in mind and play safe. Thank you for having me. This is a conversation that has been going on with me and, and many of the people that I've been involved with for 40 years, and we're still at the same place with, wow, you know, we got to be careful with what we're doing. we got to be thoughtful with what we're doing and we've got to be caring with what we're doing how would we feel if somebody did that to us you know and having the opportunity to share that kind of thinking with your listeners is, is important i appreciate it it's all fun and games until somebody gets badly hurt and then the lawyers come out so we want to uh, try to keep that from happening and continue to have fun and games legally yes responsibly 
and take care of our people. Masters, take care of your slaves. Tops, take care of your bottoms. Bottoms, keep an eye on your tops because sometimes they get a little off. And everybody be sure to take care of yourself. Absolutely. That's rule number one. That would be rule number one. We have to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves. Because sometimes nobody else is. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing you can rely on. Nobody else is. Yep. Ron, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon, and I'm sure that we have lots of other subjects that we can broach. <laughs> Anytime, Woody. All right. You have been listening to episode 215. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we present Franklin Vu, author of more than two. Books.